Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show in which we talk about fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. My name is Shereen Patek and I'm the managing editor of Glossy. This week's guest, Vanessa Friedman, who is fashion director and chief fashion critic at the New York Times. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you. Um, so you look very fresh for someone who just spent, uh, <laughs> what was it, like the last, probably feels like month, men, fashion month, a yeah. lot of months, it probably felt like years, um, just sort of going to every single show, I assume. Um, so what was the whole, ex- how, what was it like this year? You know, it's always like being on a hamster wheel. You're just going and going and going. And, you know, it sounds incredibly glamorous because you say, I'm in New York and I'm in London, I'm in Milan and I'm in Paris. And everyone says, oh, I want your life. And you say, really? And that's why I'm filing it for in the morning or from the metro. Um, you know, it's really, it's like being in some sort of alternative fashion land and you could actually be on Jupiter, you know, for all you're actually in a city. I think I think this year was sort of interesting because um, you were sort of hosting the New York Times Snapchat for part of New York Fashion Week, and I think for um, for a lot of people that kind of I'm sure thought that oh what a glamorous life Vanessa leads. At least for me, I remember watching that and thinking, oh my God, she must be tired because you sort of had everything you were talking about come to life. Then, what was kind of the conversation you know at the time, sort of with you about? Let's give readers sort of a behind-the-scenes glimpse into what it's like being a fashion critic, what it's like kind of making all of this happen. Well, you know, when it was first suggested, I said to them, you understand what this means, right? You know, and they're like, oh, shows, models, you know. And I said, no, it's, it starts really early and it ends really late and it's a lot of the same over and over and over again. And they're like, well, you don't need to do that much from each show. You know, but I think until it actually happened, no one really does understand how kind of relentless it is and how you know much this just goes on and on and on and on Mm -hmm. um you know but the response to it was really good so that was nice what was the idea behind it I mean was it that hey let's show people the reality because that's what you were saying actually the reality is that it's not as you know know, the reality is is here's me at 5 30 a.m wait actually you can't see me because I am really not viewable at that time in the morning that was my thing my favorite (laughs) moment where you're just like nope I'm not getting on camera right now um let's talk a little bit about fashion coverage um Mm -hmm. as someone who's been doing it for a very long time um what's changed in fashion media um not just at the times but just in general across across the media landscape yeah, it's the same thing that's you know, changed in every media outlet and in every industry. You know, clearly, the rise of digital, the rise of variety of platforms has changed how people, you know, have to think about coverage. Um, you know, how you communicate with your, rather your your readership, your viewership. Um, you know, how you think about different stories, how you communicate with brands. What has been the hardest challenge of that for you? It's really identifying what story is best told where and um, and then balancing it all. Um, one thing that, you know, we often talk about at Glossy is sort of, you know, the rise of modern media. And um, one, big, one big thing I've realized about, especially your writing, is how sort of when you're talking about shows, you're talking about clothes, you always try to make it this point to kind of go beyond what's happening on the runway in front of you, bring in social ramifications mm-hmm. of fashion, bring in sort of culture at large. Mm-hmm. 
Why do you do that? You know, it started when I got to the Financial Times, which is the first time I'd really been doing fashion all the time at a newspaper. And I was trying to identify what the role of fashion in a newspaper as opposed to a glossy magazine would be and what was different. And I really decided ultimately that it was about placing fashion in the middle of all these different strains of people's lives, which is what a newspaper covers. And so ever since then, that's been kind of my approach. You know, if you're interested in fashion, you wear fashion, here's what it has to do with everything else. So it really it really is about sort of fashion in glossy magazine media versus fashion for a different type of reader. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say versus. I'd just mm-hmm. say, you know, those two um, forms of media fulfill different purposes. Well, what was it like kind of making kind of making that decision or sort of going through that process of trying to figure out what's going to work for the reader of the Financial Times or the New York Times versus, again, maybe not a versus, but somebody who's reading Vogue and buying it as an everyday staple of what they do. I mean, these are completely different types mm-hmm. of people, right? I don't think so. I mean, I think that you can, you know, there are plenty of New York Times readers who read Vogue. I mean, I read Vogue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the point is that you as a journalist have a responsibility to do a different job because otherwise, why would you read the New York Times and Vogue? Mm-hmm. You know, you need to get different kinds of information from the different places you visit. Mm-hmm. And so it was really figuring out what that was. And it made me, it has made me, continues to make me um, more and more interested in fashion, actually, mm-hmm. you know, because I think. The more you understand what people are trying to say about the world around them through clothes, you know, it, the sort of more endlessly fascinating it gets. Give me an example of sort of one of the first times you went, started doing that, um, whether it was at the FT or afterwards, but um, about where you sort of realized, I mean, was it a, did readers talk to you about sort of this different approach of covering it? Was that something that you heard back about? Um, what was that like? No, I mean, people generally don't like admitting that they spend a lot of time thinking about their clothes. Um, <laughs> it's sort of like the greatest you know, truth I behind mean, it. You know, I, I have a lot of um, instances, particularly with men, where, you know, the first thing they say to me is, oh, oh I never think about fashion. Oh, I don't read the fashion and, pages. And I say, well, did you dress yourself this morning? And they always sort of look at me strangely. Just barely. And say, yes. And I said, well, you think about fashion. You know, everybody thinks about fashion. Mm -hmm. Even nudists think about fashion. You know, they're making an absolutely conscious decision to not wear something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that makes it this endlessly fertile topic Mm -hmm. because it is one of the few universal subjects. Is that where you get your story ideas from? Yeah, I think story ideas are all around you all the time. (laughs) Um, You know, but in terms of when I first started really thinking about this, um, it was probably when... I started paying attention to what kind of public figures were wearing and how they were using their clothes to, you know, underscore a message they were trying to send, you know, whether it was about themselves and their own kind of position of power or, you know, some broader subject. Mm-hmm. And and that all sort of, you know, all this kind of coincided with the rise of social media and the kind of increasing importance of visual communication, you know, whether it was Instagram or Snapchat or Pinterest or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so increasingly what you were saying without words was very important. Mm-hmm. You know, and clothes are a huge part of that. The celebrities thing is interesting. I, I remember we were, I was thinking about this a little while ago, sort of the rise of the paparazzi and really how the rise of the paparazzi really mm-hmm. contributed to then understanding, oh, having this front row seat to what a lot of celebrities were doing all the time before where there was none. And this is, you know, predate social mm-hmm. media. But suddenly it's like 
regular people could find out more things about the people that they were supposedly obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And then and then that kind of feels like it was the start of it all. Well, then it became part of marketing. Right. And um, and that's now extended, you know, th- through everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone is a brand. Right. What do you think? Um, what do you think about sort of different types of celebrities today? I mean, obviously, people have talked about influencers. People have talked about bloggers. Celebrities are no longer just you know movie stars or even politicians. Um, they can really come from anywhere. I mean, taste ma- I mean, I think they used to be known as tastemakers, and now they're known as influencers. Um, what has their impact been on fashion brands and then fashion media? You know, I think for fashion brands, they've become simply another way of reaching an audience and another voice to tap into or to court, you know, to reach an audience. And that's a good thing. You know, I I don't have any issues with this. Um, It hasn't meaningfully affected what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think it's great for everybody to have a seat at the table. It's a very it's a very democratic point of view, Vanessa has. Um, let's talk a little bit about shows. I mean, obviously, uh-huh. this was this was the first. Um, this was the real. I think this was really the season where everyone started talking about um, a lot of what what had been discussed with See Now by Now, and things started mm-hmm. finally coming to fruition. It felt like. What is your current assessment of what we're what we're seeing with the fashion calendar? What we're seeing with See Now by Now? Um, describe to me how you would assess the situation as it currently stands. I mean, I don't think you can. I think you have to give it at least a season because, you know, of course someone is going to get a bump in sales the day after a show. Whether that continues and continues in such a way that it actually creates a bigger revenue, you know, bigger revenue growth than it would have if it had been on the traditional calendar is unclear to anyone. So I think any rush to judgment at this stage is way too early. Mm-hmm. You know, and if it, I mean, if it does, if in, you know, by the time we hit next season, Burberry and Tommy Hilfiger and um, Tom Ford are all talking about how, you know, they've tripled their business by changing their calendar, I'm sure we'll see, you know, more brands trying to do the same thing. Do you think, though, that this is, I mean, then does this not, does this not feel like the most obvious thing because I mean in some cases I think there were people saying well why didn't we think of this earlier I mean we for example we had Tanya Taylor on the podcast a couple weeks ago and you know as a relatively younger designer I think she was like well I'd always thought that this made the most sense from a from a logistics perspective I could see why I couldn't sell the things at the time I wanted to sell them and had to wait um but is it still something that remains to be seen then that, you know, kind of appealing to a customer to sell to them when they want to be sold to maybe not going to work out, maybe not going to be the thing until you see the exact revenue figures unless until Tom Ford says, oh, hey, I tripled my sales in the last season. I don't know. I mean, I'm less um, I'm less convinced that everyone needs to be led by their customer than some people are. You know, I think like, you know, my kids want a lot of stuff and they often want it when they see it. But that doesn't mean they need to get it. They definitely And, and I'm not sure that like any of us are suffering as a result. Um, you know, just because at one moment a consumer says something, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the right reason to change an entire business model. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Marco Bizzari, who runs Gucci, once said, if you listen too much to your consumers, you'll never do anything new. You know, and and I think that is sort of broadly applicable, too. I think if you listen too much to what people want, you can't really lead them. And that's really what you should, you know, be doing as a company in any area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think where there's an issue now with too much stuff. 
I think we just have a glut of product. And I don't think it makes any difference whether you can get that product now or get that product in six months. You know, neither of those things is going to solve that issue. And that issue is part of the problem with, you know, people not wanting to buy stuff. How much does, because you're right, there is definitely this idea that, if, well, I asked for it now, so I should want it now in other aspects of our lives. And so maybe translating it to fashion or especially luxury couture fashion is mm-hmm. not the solution. Social media, people rush to blame everything on social media. But in this case, it really feels like, I mean, it's something, you know, Karen Katz has talked about uh, with Neiman Marcus that, hey, you know, having people get things when they wanted to get them or at least being able to see things on social media and then wanting to get them is a large part of why we didn't do as well in the last quarter. How much of it can come back to, how much of it can come back? I see you shaking your head. I don't, I don't actually believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this constant debate with Ken Downing from, um, from Neiman Marcus, who is a huge proponent of see now by now mm-hmm. um, and probably the most vocal uh, retailer on the subject. You know, I just, I do not think that Instagram is the culprit here. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as much as anything, it's putting clothes on celebrities immediately off the runway, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe they're on Instagram. But, you know, the truth is like, I think most consumers can say, okay, that's on a model, on a runway, I'm going to get it in a couple months, and that's fine. But when you see someone who is theoretically a real person wearing a garment, even if it's a celebrity real person, it makes it seem somehow much more accessible to you know, the viewer. And then I think it does look old because it's been worn. I mean, that's the thing. Like if it's on a runway, it doesn't really count as being well, the worn. Model worn but it. it's on a red carpet. Like that's worn. Hmm. And then you do think, oh, well, that's old. And then I don't want it anymore. I don't want it anymore. And in fact, you know, most very, very um, high-end jewelers will not give their um, most special collections out to celebrities to be worn precisely because the customer who's going to buy that will say to them, oh, no, that's been worn. I don't want it. And 100 million people around the world saw that person wear it because it was trotted out at the Emmys broadcast. Right, and, and it's expensive enough that I want my own thing. I, I'm liking this because I feel like it's it's you know it's taking these this idea and God this term the democratization of fashion on its and it's kind of turning it on its head a little bit because it's not really about democratizing it if it means you can't lead it because mm-hmm. sometimes too much democracy not always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how are brands responding to this? I mean, you've got, you know, the Ken Downings of the world who've, who've definitely staked a very clear position on when it comes to what happens next. Um, what about other, what about other companies, other, you know, department stores, retailers, and then the brands themselves? I mean, you've got sort of a whole bunch of opinions on the spectrum when it comes to how much do I say, yes, I'll give the customer what they want. Some people are saying, I will never, I'm going to go back to doing the way things have always been. Um, where do you see sort of everyone falling on the spectrum? Well, I think, I mean, you know, you have the the high street or fast fashion, you know, which really is customer-led and does give the customer exactly what they want. And I think that's great. And that's, you know, it works incredibly well for those businesses like Zara and H&M. Um, you know, for the high end, in fact, I would say like 90% of brands are not doing this. You know, and certainly in Milan and in Paris, you know, are not interested in doing it. You know, have come out and said, we're not doing this. You know, we need the time to make things. We need to make things that it takes people a while to understand, you know, which is often true. Like I remember seeing a tulip skirt, I don't know, when Stefano Pilati brought it back, you know, on the Saint Laurent runway um, years ago and thinking like, ew, <laughs> like, I don't like that. Who's going to wear that? You know, that looks old. Mm-hmm. And, and about six to eight months later, when about 15 designers were doing tulip skirts, suddenly I was like, oh, 
I'm liking that tulip skirt. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe I do want to wear a tulip skirt. You know, so it does often take your eye six months or so to adjust to a really, you know, a new shape or a shape you haven't seen in a long time. And it is in a brand's interest to give you that time. You know, if they're genuinely trying to push, you know, ideas of silhouette or cut to adjust. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the brands kind of doing that in in the way, you know, that you've seen, especially this season, whether it was pushing a trend that you think will take six months to adjust or maybe a couple of months to adjust? Um, Something gosh. that I'm not going to look at right now and be like, all right, want that, need that, done. You know, there were tons and tons and tons of huge sleeves on the runway this last season. And, um, you know, and that is something that I think most people look at and think like, hmm, like that's awfully 80s or that feels very oversize. And, you know, if you see enough of it at a certain point, then you start thinking, hmm, a sleeve. I don't like a sleeve. Um, You know, certainly like the return of the 80s, I think for some people will take longer. Um, You know, and the other thing that I found very interesting is the kind of rise of modest fashion, you know, after um, lots and lots and lots of transparency, and I don't know if it's because of the kind of general political discourse that's been going on or the acceptance of different sorts of clothing, but, you know, I I have a yen for an ankle-length skirt, (laughs) and I don't think that has ever happened to me before. (laughs) But again, it's one of those things that could take time. Where does the role of PR fit in into these brands, and how has that changed? Well, I mean, fashion is about storytelling, right? It's about, it's the stories that you tell to yourself. Mm -hmm. It's the stories you tell to other people. And it's the stories brands tell you about themselves and about you. You know, and that is communications. And PR is communications. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it makes sense that this would be an industry based on storytelling. And every season you have to, you know, every season, every three months, Mm -hmm. you know, essentially you're telling a different story about your collection. Um, I don't think that's negative or more spinny or anything I just think it's what fashion is about do you think that there is um there is more of an emphasis being placed on supposed you know harder parts of that marketing whether it's data consumer experience you've got more um you've got you just got more technology to put out there than you had before are you seeing a lot of brands kind of put more muscle behind those hard parts well if they're smart they are but I mean, so is every company in the world. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, any, the more that any company in any industry knows about their consumer and their consumer shopping habits and the difference between consumers in different places in the world, you know, the more efficiently they can structure their business, the more they can serve the people, you know, who are their customers. I just think like, well, of course, like, why wouldn't you? Do you think fashion is doing it at a slower pace than other industries? You know, I don't know enough about automotive to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not automotive. Um, Great. We're almost out of time, but I do want to talk a little bit about the future of fashion coverage. Um, I'm I'm curious about what you think about sort of the post-print or the anti-print or the digital-only media out there. I mean, is there a future for fashion coverage beyond the print era? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit about where it's going to go. You know, look, it's just coverage of any... Media is, you know, again, it's about storytelling of any industry. It's about storytelling. It's about reporting. It's about journalism. um, It's about opinion. And I don't think it really matters if you're doing that in print or online or, you know, on a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're still doing it. And hopefully you're doing it with the same rigor and responsibility and values, you know, whatever the platform. So... You know, to me, it's just another interesting 
way of storytelling. You know, and I think all these forms will, to varying extents, probably continue to exist. You know, there may be more online, less print. You know, but at the same time, you know, in the same way that like records are coming back, you know, vinyl is back, and you know, um, independent magazines are flourishing. You know, like there is a desire for all these different forms, and I, I don't think they're going to disappear entirely. There has been, you know, there have been a lot of fashion digital only brands or even digital offshoots of print brands that have in recent years not done so well, um, suffered. Is that, um, do you have a sense of sort of why it is feels like it's so much harder to build uh, a digital media arm in fashion versus again, maybe covering another industry? It just feels like it's been very hard for a lot of these companies. And it's like, you've got the blogs and, you, and that's it. There's nobody else doing digital only. I don't know. I mean, I think things like um, Nowness are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a blog. No. Um, no, I think, you know, we're at the beginning of something, and beginnings are messy and chaotic and full of failure and mistakes. And, you know, what's really also fun and exciting about them is you get to try all this stuff. And as long as you're willing to take the risk, you know, why not? Yeah. Let's see. <laughs> It's a nice visit of positivity from Vanessa Friedman. Vanessa, thanks so much for being on the Glossy Podcast. And thanks to you for listening. We're on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher. And we'll be back next week with more.